So this morning, as we're continuing to work through an Orthodox catechism, we're uh, in chapter 8 in the catechism, and we're dealing with the Lord's Supper. So this is under man's redemption, specifically um, thinking about redemption and how the uh, sacraments or ordinances that have been given to the church point to that redemption, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, So we're still on the topic of the Lord's Supper, and this morning, sort of under the umbrella of the Lord's Supper, we're going to talk about singing, and we're going to talk about the keys of the kingdom. How do both of these relate to the Lord's Supper as we've been going through this specific part of an Orthodox catechism? So let's start. Uh, Let me have someone read question 67, the question and answer, um, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Who wants to read that for us? Question 67. Crystal, go for it. Question 87. How ought this ordinance of the Lord's Supper to be closed? Answer. In singing praises to God vocally and audibly for his great benefits and blessings to his church and the shedding of the most precious blood of his son to take away their sin, which blessings are appointed out in this sacrament. Also, we find our Lord and his disciples concluded this ordinance in singing a hymn or song. If Christ sang, who was going to die, how much more cause to sing have we for whom he died. He died that we might not eternally die, but live a spiritual and eternal life with Father, Son, and Spirit in inexpressible glory. Okay, thank you. Thank you for discerning my error. I said 67, you ready? <laughs> <laughs> so this question here basically deals with singing, song. Um, how ought the ordinance of the Lord's Supper to be closed? And singing. Now, this little question is uh, a really practical point of the Lord's Supper. Giving thanks to God for his kindness in this ordinance, our response to God should be song and thanksgiving and praise. A meal given by Christ to his church to assure us of our uh, sonship, our union with Christ, um, our security and the faith that we will not be snatched out of the hand of God um, to tell us again that we belong not to the world, but to our heavenly father and our heavenly home, which has been purchased for us and prepared for us by Christ to remind us that we don't stand alone as pilgrims sort of on this progress to heaven. But as you look around at other Christians, even in this room, we all suffer in different ways. We all um, deal with affliction and trial and discomfort and discouragement as we take the Lord's Supper together at the same time, in the same room, um, unto the same Lord. We are encouraged again that you walk alongside a cloud of witnesses, that you do not suffer alone, even though we can feel alone at times. The Lord's Supper is e- even a reminder of that, that we are a community of believers, not just in this room or in the church, but across the world. And you think about this, um, this point here of the Lord's Supper, how should it be closed? How should we end it with a song? James 5, uh, 14, it says that uh, believers should do something when they are sick. Does anybody know what that, anybody familiar with that verse, James 5, 14, what does it say? To the elders. Go to the elders that they may lay hands on them, right? Um, that they may be healed. Anybody know what comes right before that? In James 5, 13. Anoint with oil. Yes. 
I heard something up here. Yeah, so it's the oil, which is the, in 14. But singing, it's very interesting. It says, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. So there's a description of a, the state of a person and then a response. You know, there's a sickness and uh, the laying on of hands and different folks interpret that different ways. There's the sorrow um, and there's uh, praying and then there's cheerfulness and there's singing. Let those who are cheerful sing. Do you usually think about the response to cheerfulness being a song or singing? Do you break out in song when you're happy? <laughs> Most adults don't do that. We've been taught by the culture that that's probably inappropriate. <laughs> right? But look at our kids. They get happy about something they sing. Uh, the Christian's sort of default response and joy and cheerfulness, the scripture says, should be song. They should sing together. Right? This question about singing after communion it's also interesting because it's not in the Heidelberg Catechism. So we talked about the Heidelberg Catechism and an Orthodox uh, Catechism sort of being cousin uh, catechisms. Uh, the Heidelberg being a uh, Pedobaptist Presbyterian Catechism and Orthodox being the Baptistic sort of version of the Heidelberg Catechism. But this question, specifically question 67, or sorry, 87, about singing isn't in the Heidelberg Confession. Now, there are four additions that are in an Orthodox confession, what we're going through, and not in, a he in, in the Heidelberg Catechism, and in, in the Orthodox Catechism and not in the Heidelberg Catechism. Apart from something like believer's baptism, for the most part, these additions don't disagree with the framers of the Heidelberg Catechism. But the more, um, but like for Hercules Collins, there were more like additions to help clarify and to give some distinction from Baptist to, or credo-Baptist to pedo-Baptist. Um, uh, those who believe in believer's baptism and those who do not, they would hold to infant baptism. Now, one of these uh, distinctions, again, is this question about singing a hymn after the Lord's Supper. Now, the editors of an Orthodox catechism, if you had it, have it in your hand, the editors, uh, Haken and Weaver, they wrote this in, in that catechism. Sorry, in that, yeah, in that catechism. With regard to singing hymns as an ordinance, this was a matter of no small controversy among the Baptists in the two decades following the publication of Collins' Orthodox Catechism, especially during the, night, the, the 1690s. Collins actually included a substantial appendix to the catechism that was devoted to this subject. So he wrote, um, and sort of the origins of an orthodox catechism. There was an appendix to it that dealt specifically with singing and the Lord's Supper, Just really interesting, but there's a, a context to this as well. Um, in the catechism itself, he simply asked a question and answer, how ought this ordinance of the Lord's Supper be closed? In a nutshell, Collins answers with, with singing praise to God. Yet he had a whole appendix devoted to this subject. And some of the earliest separatist congregations, led by a man named John Smith, they would meet for six, seven, eight hours. So imagine us gathering, right? So we have, um, we have our prayer meeting, and then we have the Lord's, uh, we have uh, Sunday school, and then we have service, and then 
we have the Lord's Supper, and then we have um, uh, extended service. Imagine us being together. To some of you, this just sounds terrible. Being together for seven to eight hours and not once singing. There's no song. There's no Lord's Supper. There's no baptism. There's a, 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 some teaching, like a Bible study, but there's no singing. This was the norm for the earliest um, separatist churches that were of Baptist conviction. Seven to eight hours with no singing. Um, separatists were the uh, early English Protestants that separated themselves from the Church of England. This church, led by John Smith, saw worship as something that should be more spontaneous. Matthew Stanton, who wrote a book called um, Liturgy and Identity, specifically dealing with the 17th century uh, particular Baptist, really interesting book. I've only read parts of it, uh, but it's, it's really interesting. He does really interesting research on this subject of singing. Um, but Michael Stanton, um, he said this in, in his book, or basically he writes this, this discussion on this matter of singing in the church. He said, there was some Bible study, there was some discussion about discipline matters but no time for sacraments or the practice of singing. By choosing not to sing corporately, those early separatist congregations felt like they were purifying worship from the prescribed forms and practices of the Church of England, where the liturgy of the local church was governed by who? By what? The state. So there was this relationship between church and state that separatists, um, even our uh, early um, Baptist forefathers saw as harmful. In hindsight, it's clear to see that some of their practices went too far and the pendulum swung too far the other direction. So they just stopped singing altogether since singing was something that was prescribed by the church state. Um, it wasn't until a couple of generations later that singing together was retrieved and practiced. Matthew Stanton again writes, Baptist congregations returned to the practice of congregational singing and joined in the common Puritan practice of singing psalms. So this was one of the biggest controversies within uh, our, I'll say, family history as Baptists, this issue of singing corporately together. I mean, this was like uh, the world, world War I of the Baptist uh, community historically, and it was over the topic of singing corporately together. Now, where do we see singing in Scripture? Where does this idea come from? The Lord's Supper and then singing. Matthew 26, 26 to 30. Let me have someone read those verses for us. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 to 30. So this is one place where the idea of the Lord's Supper followed by a song um, was captured and carried by um, our Baptist forefathers, seeing 
singing as a right response to the goodness of God and salvation and even in the Lord's Supper as it pictures that. They ate together and then they sung a hymn. Colossians 3, 12 to 17, uh, it says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bear with one another. And if someone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So there's here now this uh, command for the word of Christ to dwell in the Christian richly or abundantly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then what is the, the next line there? The next part of that verse, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, a lot of the times it's in conversations I've been in and conversations I've read and discussions Colossians 3.16 becomes this sort of debate about, well, what are psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? And is it all basically the same thing, just worded differently? Are those different types of singing? But notice, whatever we can say about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, notice the relation to the word of Christ dwelling in you abundantly. Scripture says one of the ways that um, our faith is nourished, one of the ways that our joy is kindled. One of the ways that we uh, continue to take hold of the blessed gospel and faith is by it being our faith is stirred by something. It's 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 agitated. It's nourished by something here. Teaching, admonition, singing. Singing is a means through which your faith is encouraged. Yes, singing the right things. We should give thought to why we sing what we sing and what we're singing, but singing is a category here that the Lord uses to encourage our faith. Right alongside love, thankfulness, teaching, admonition, which is to warn, the Lord uses instruction through singing to teach and stir our consciences in faith and obedience to God. Singing is a means through which we experience the blessings and the benefits of union with Christ Abundantly, our joy in Christ overflows as we give ourselves to the instruction of the word and the singing of the word. Again, this emphasis on singing. Have you thought about singing in that way? Um, have you thought about why we sing together when we gather corporately? Um, why we sing what we sing? Do you see singing as a ministry to your own soul or your brother and sister? There are times where, you know, I've come into service and I don't know, maybe uh, discouraged or just depressed or struggling with something. And um, I don't want to sing. I just, I don't feel like it. My, my heart's not there. My emotions, they're not, they're not there. My mind is distracted. And I, I feel bad. Lord, I know I should sing, but I just, I don't want to sing right now. And I hear a brother or sister, somebody around me, and they're singing. 
And I mean, I don't know what they're suffering with. In my head, I'm thinking, well, they're not suffering with what I'm suffering with. That's, that's why they can sing. But maybe they are. And the Lord has given them as a means of encouragement to stir your heart to be reminded of the promises of God so that you do sing. So that your affections, you know, at times our affections and our words, they are not aligned. But I don't think that's always hypocrisy. I think it can be. But I think sometimes you're willing yourself to sing and your own singing, you hearing yourself sing is aligning your affections with the truth of God's word. That's just the reality of what it is. We are fallen people. We need encouragement. Christians on the pilgrimage, we need help in that way. And the Lord gives us singing to help us on our pilgrimage. So we should, we should sing. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yep. When our own hearts um, condemn us or accuse us, singing uh, helps the soul. It helps the heart. It helps the mind. We we hear the word of God as we sing to one another, which is another just encouragement. So we should sing. Um. So back to our our uh, Baptist forefathers, our family history. Early Baptist churches did eventually sing corporately, but it came at a great cost. Singing and corporate worship was one of the greatest controversies in our Baptist history. This edition by Hercules Collins is important for what it meant for Baptists. So he has this question on singing, but there's a whole context and history behind this. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, edition is also important for what it says, sorry, the, the Orthodox um, Catechism edition is also important for what it says about the regulative principle of worship. Now we've talked about the regulative principle before. Can somebody just, in a quick, pithy way, define that? Yes, right. So worshiping in the way that the Bible prescribes. What, what, what do we see uh, in scripture as the God's instruction for how we should worship? So again, Haken and Weaver write in an uh, in, in Orthodox catechism that you have there. Um, singing is uh, the fit response to God for his great benefits and his blessings um, are shown in singing. They're given to the church of Christ. Um, and we further realize, we meditate on, we um, give thought to we contemplate and we give God thanks as we sing. The Lord and his, his, his apostles finished the Lord's Supper with a hymn. Um, if Christ did sing, who was going to die, what cause have we um, to sing for whom he died? That we might not eternally die, but live in spiritual and eternal life with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and inexpressible joy. Singing should be a normative part of our worship together. Even family worship, right? As you gather um, you know, on the couch, around the table, you may read a verse or two, uh, pray, talk about it, but add singing to that. Uh, find a hymn, uh, a simple hymn, a, a common hymn, a, a psalm, something that you can sort of weave into the liturgy of your home where you're reading, singing, and praying because this is the Christian's response. And as our children hear us sing and you know, sometimes in, in our home, just I'm tired, so I'm singing, but I'm just like, 
I just let's just go to bed. <laughs> I'm tired. The kids are tired. Everybody's sort of frustrated. Um, and I'm, I'm singing, but I'm just sort of I can find myself going through the motions of singing. Um, but even my own heart, I have to check myself and say, I, I want to sing in a way that my kids see that this Jesus that he's talking about is worthy of joyful singing and not just sort of the routine of singing. So I, I don't do this perfectly either, but um, we, can, we can help each other do it better, right? So singing as a response to the Lord's Supper and just in addition to that, even in the liturgy of our home, singing is, is important. And this is why we sing together here. Kyle? Yeah. To what you had said earlier, remember someone had said that what's the difference between praying and singing? Hmm. Because content can be so similar. Yeah. But singing is a way that engages the entire person, uh, especially in regards to the affections or the emotions of a person. Yeah. Right, where, where it engages them more. And I, you think of that individually when you sing, right? How that can it can engage you. But then I think corporately. Yeah. We are all together. It like you like you said earlier. It just has a weight and an impact. Again, right. You're not, we, we don't worship for the experience, right? Yeah. But it is, but, but we are experiential, right? Right. Um, so there, there is definitely that element, right? Where we're, you know, trying to sing until we sing, right? You know, like, um, so yeah. But but to that point, I mean, this got me thinking, you know, the the difference between praying and singing, and right. how singing really does it heightens, you know, really draws that to to a a, a higher point, if you will. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Lord is made us body and soul. Um, within our soul, we have uh, the capacity for emotion, which is good and right, uh, to glorify God, to, 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 to feel, in a sense. Um, and so singing does, and was designed by our triune God, I think to have an effect on man. Um, it can have negative effects, obviously, but for the Christian, those effects are good and righteous and, and holy, and they should be stirred among one another. So, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, they, uh, singing is different from prayer in that way. It does stir you in a, in a different way. Yeah. Yep. Any other thoughts on question 67? We're just going to, I keep saying 67. Why? <laughs> what is it called when you like look at a number and you still say the wrong number? It's a thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> I guess 37 is pushing the uh, old age bracket. <laughs> 87. 87. Okay, so we're only going to hit, hit 87 and 88 today, but any other thoughts on 87 or singing? Okay. Uh, question 88. Let me have someone read the question and answer to that. told us but now that those who in confession and life declare themselves to be infidels, profane and ungodly, should by the keys of the kingdom of heaven be driven from the suffering. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? All right. Do you want me to do the answer? Yes, please. Okay. Yep. We're just going <laughs> to... Uh, the preaching of the gospel and ecclesiastical discipline, by which heaven is open to the believers and is shut against the unbelievers. Okay, and then two verses here uh, in an Orthodox catechism, Matthew 16, 19, and Matthew 18, 18. So when I look at this, when I read this, um, the, 
what I see here, and I think what uh, the uh, Hercules Collins and those uh, drawers of the Heidelberg Catechism are trying to draw out, is this emphasis on the keys of the kingdom, right? So we've already read in past questions that certain folks should not come to the table, but should be uh, barred. The table should be fenced in, in that way. Um, but the keys of the kingdom of, of heaven is something um, present here in this fencing or barring that gives authority in some sense to someone here concerning who comes to the Lord's table, uh, when and if. The preaching of the gospel and ecclesiastical discipline by which heaven is opened to the believers and is shut against the unbelievers. Now, there's been a lot written. Um, I'm, I'm sure I've only read a fraction of all the writings on this idea of uh, fencing the table, the kings of, of the kingdom, um, in what way are, is, are, are the kings of the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom used? What's a proper way? What's an improper way? What does that even mean? Um, but as we see in this, this question here, this kings of the kingdom are the preaching of the gospel and ecclesiastical discipline, discipline within the church, by which heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. So where does that language, keys of the kingdom, come from? Matthew 6, uh, sorry, Matthew 16, I did it again. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Um, someone read Matthew 16, 13 through 19. And we want to, so we're, we're thinking now about the keys of the kingdom. What are they? How do they come? How are, how are they used? Thank you. Now, this verse has been used by um, Roman Catholics um, in different ways to say that the authority has been given to Peter and would believe in an apostolic succession, um, and that those there's a, a line through which the authority, even in today's church, um, or the Roman Catholic Church that popes hold in the, the line of Peter. But uh, as Protestants, we recognize that the strength of what's said here is not Peter, but the confession that Peter makes concerning the Christ. Um, now, the keys of the kingdom is the authority given by Christ for the church to do something on earth. The church has the authority to shut someone out by their judgment 
in that person's rejection of the gospel of Christ. Um, the, 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 the order here is the authority is given to Christ. Christ gives this authority to his apostles, the apostles to the church. And specifically, well, the, the church gathered. Uh, but Christ is also given to the church those uh, ministers, um, those overseers and shepherds who, along with the church, execute judgment in that sense, which we'll, we'll talk about in a sec here. So the church also has authority to recognize and to admit someone into Christ's fellowship by their obedience to that gospel, to the blessed gospel that we believe. Richard Barcellus wrote, the church then has the authority to pronounce on earth the forgiveness of sins and the coming judgment of God on all unbelievers. It is within the church's unique sphere of delegated or and well, delegated and limited sovereignty to pronounce that these things um, to, to pronounce these things on earth. This also gives the church the delegated right to receive and discipline its members. The order of the keys of the kingdom is this: Christ the apostles, the church. The keys give something or someone the power of admittance and withholding the privileges of the kingdom. So uh, rather we seeing, uh, us seeing this as, as Peter or uh, in his line, a pope who has the authority to uh, admit or bar, uh, we recognize that the church is built upon the confession of uh, Peter not Peter uh, himself. Um, in Ephesians, we see this language in Ephesians 2, if I'm not mistaken, um, where it says the church is built on the teaching of the prophets and the apostles, um, Christ being the chief cornerstone, right? Um, the prophets and the apostles, as they speak of, prophesy about, testify to the God-man, um, his person and his work as the foundation of the church, uh, the gospel. So, this authority has been given to the church from the apostles, from Christ. Uh, but this authority started with Jesus, Matthew 28, 18 through 19. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then Jesus gives this authority to the church, to the apostles. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the church has been given authority to go with Christ's authority to preach the good news of Christ, to make disciples of those who will know and obey Christ's commands. The church has been given authority to baptize in the Trinitarian name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The church has also been given authority to lock out and admit or bring in. Now, when I say that, it can sound like I'm saying that uh, the church has um, an infallible eye. It, it can see, it can perceive, it knows who's a believer and who's not when, they, when someone's brought into the church or put out of the church. Um, that the church can look and say, look at someone's heart and say, they walk in the door and the church says, oh, that's a Christian. I can tell. We don't know. We can't know because we can't see someone's heart. But the Lord has given to the church an authority and commands and uh, a pr 
process, for lack of better terms, to discern if someone is in the faith. And then it, scripture also says that that person will show by their actions whether or not they're in the faith. Um, so really, it all, in some sense, puts this responsibility back on the person, not to save themselves or to unsave themselves, uh, but to show whether or not they are truly saved or not. Um, Matthew chapter eight, uh, 15, starting at, where is this, verse, uh, no, I got that wrong. Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. Let me have someone read Matthew 18. Uh, read verse 15 through verse 20. Whoever wants to read that for us. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every act may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Okay, thank you. So a few things uh, here in this verse to notice, or that I'm going to bring out at least for us to notice. Um, one, this process of Matthew 18 uh, this isn't this this doesn't mean that uh, any time someone is offended by anything that someone may do that they need to start you know Matthew 18 sometimes we see Matthew 18 as like I don't know like in Super Mario Brothers where they get that gold star and they can just do anything <laughs> that's uh, we, we don't want to view it in, in that way. And, and this, this also isn't like, I mean, this, it's, it's a part of scripture. It's not like this, you know, sword that we bring out when we really are frustrated and we really want to execute judgment on someone. Matthew 18 is for the purpose of what? Restoration. 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 Yes, restoration, reconciliation. Um, the end goal of Matthew 18, the, the ultimate goal isn't to cast out. It's actually to bring back in through a process of repentance. Um, so notice that. And then two, um, where there are two or three are gathered in my name. Whether two or three are gathered in my name, um, I know for me, my own church history, um, I came out of a church that had a view of this verse that basically said where two or three Christians are together, anything you ask for, you can ask the Lord will hear and he's going to give it in my context then that meant that if you wanted a really nice house you go to a lot and you look at the new constructions you call two or three of your friends and you lay hands on that house and say Lord I want this two or three are gathered you said in your word two or three are gathered together and and you expect that the Lord will give you that house or that car or, or, or whatever it was 
Um, unfortunately, I have literally done things like that with this verse. I've come a long way. <laughs> I'm not who I used to be. Um, but this verse has been taken out of context. This is not what that means. Two or three gathered was, is really a, 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 it points back to the Old Testament um, and the witness of two or three, the word of two or three, something being substantiated, confirmed. Um, Christ is saying, if the church with its appointed authority determines that the unrepentant person is an unbeliever, then uh, they can put them out of the church um, and treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. And essentially he's saying, I am with them, with my authority, as they do it. Um, as an example of this, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 12, it says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Put him out of the church. Um, the church has been given authority to remove someone from its local gathering and to regard them as their actions indicate to put them out. They're acting as if they're not in the kingdom. Regard them as that. Then second Corinthians chapter two, talking about the same issue says, let them back in. Second Corinthians five, or I'm sorry. Second Corinthians two, five to 11 says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you to know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2 are talking about the same situation. First, he says, put him out. You're arrogant. He's in the church. Put him out. 2 Corinthians, he says, bring him back in. He's learned his lesson. Um, he's, he's repented. Bring him back. The question is, who's putting out, who's bringing in? Well, the church. They have been given this authority to treat, in that sense, this man as his lifestyle is preaching, representing. Treat, treat him as an unbeliever. He's acting like an unbeliever. Treat him as a Gentile and a, and a tax collector. And then he says, bring him, bring him back in. That is the goal of Matthew 18, when he says, bring him back. He's, he's repented. Um, but the keys of the kingdom here, which is the point of this, the keys of the kingdom have been given to the church through the proclamation of the gospel. Um, a practical way that we see this, in our church at least, is when uh, someone comes and you know, maybe they're visiting for a while, they want to join. We have a process of new members class. Um, that language can throw people off, but it's for the purpose of discerning whether or not this person is a believer. Uh, because as shepherds, we want to guard the church to make sure that only believers are members of a church, right? We believe that, right? Only yes. Christians should be members of a church. Okay. 
we can affirm that. It's okay. <laughs> so we have this process of new members where we teach classes, uh, we talk with them, we have like an interview process, and we, you know, we want to discern to pick up: are they in the in the faith? Are they not? If they are in the faith, have they been baptized? Um, and recognition of that, and acknowledgement of Christ's authority, and Christ putting His seal on them, and so we have a practical process to discern that because we don't know. But we can do that, and the church can say, uh, this person is a believer, we are bringing them into membership uh, because the church has some authority to be able to do that, uh, the keys of the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. How have they responded to the gospel? Are they rejecting the gospel and saying, no, I don't believe that, I don't want anything to do with that Christ, that God? And we say, well, you're not a believer. We're making a judgment call. Um, you're not in the faith. Uh, the, the wrath of God remains on you, right? That's a judgment call. But we're doing that based off of this person's response, not to our personality or a private conversation we have, but to the gospel. How are you responding to the gospel? Because you're already judged if you have responded with rejection. Scripture says you're, you're already judged. But if you respond by God's grace um, and joyful submission and reception, and you're given a new heart, then the church can recognize that because Christ is with them through the preaching of his gospel by the Spirit to say, in, out. It, it's more complicated than that, but ultimately that's what the church is, is saying and has the authority to say. Now, of course there are abuses. There are church, churches that, will, that have done terrible things to the heart souls of men and their abuse of these type of verses um, and borne them down under the yoke of the Pharisees. I'm not commending that. Scripture isn't affirming that. Scripture actually says they will be judged. But a right use of the keys of the kingdom is, um, can be used with, with Christ's authority behind it. Um, and no other area of life does Christ promise his special presence when two or three are gathered as among amongst the localized assembly of believers where his gracious ordinances are obeyed. The local church has the authority to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to administer the Lord's Supper, and to protect the purity of the church by practicing the instruction of church discipline. A kind instruction, I might add. Um, if Christ didn't care for the purity of his church, we wouldn't have church discipline. And he cares that that sinning brother or sister is brought back into the sweet fellowship of the saints. Um, what does this all have to do with the Lord's Supper? If the church is given the keys of the kingdom with the authority of Christ to withhold certain privileges and benefits, then it is given the authority to determine who should and who can come to the Lord's table. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Um, so questions on that. Thoughts, other verses that come to mind. George. Just a comment. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that Matthew 18. Um, I think Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Right. So I think that, and by extension, the apostles are the foundation of the church. That, so by extension, the church has this authority. Yeah. And then also, along with that, too, the text that you quoted from First Corinthians 5. Yes. The um, man who had True. Yeah. 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 And you wonder, you know, the question, well, how does the church have the authority if it's Christ's apostles and then the church? Um, the, the apostles aren't, aren't here. They aren't alive. How, how do they exercise authority? How does the church have that authority by extension? Well, it's by the word of God. Um, the, the, the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. So a church that is uh, wanting to be a faithful Bible teaching church has the authority of the word as their foundation and seeks to exercise uh, authority and practice those things which scripture penned through the Holy Spirit, and the apostles, which is the authority, which is how that authority comes <laughs> to the apostles and to the church by extension. So yeah, um, the word of God is, is how the authority of the apostles is, is used within the church. Brett? There's a good analogy that I heard um, when someone was teaching on this with regards to what, by what authority. Um, you know, in our, in our time, we have, we have police officers that have a, a certain authority to mm. arrest you, to detain you, um, and they only have authority in so much as they're uh, doing it based on the written law. So uh, a police officer does not have all authority. Uh, if they go outside of the law, they have no authority over you. Yeah. Um, and so in the same way, uh, the church only possesses authority in so much as we are doing things according to the word of God hmm. faithfully. Yeah. Amen. Yep. yep. We're not autonomous, right? Churches are not autonomous. The church of God is not autonomous. Um, by church of God, I mean universal church but we are under authority of the chief shepherd, Christ. Um, and if we be, uh, disobey his word and his commands, then we have a problem with the chief shepherd. Um, so, yep, any other thoughts on that? Questions? The keys singing related to the Lord's Supper. Norm? Um, I was particularly impressed with the first paragraph on the amen. Christ saying who was going to die. Hmm. So I'm trying to immerse myself in what it means when he knew yeah. what was about to, to, to happen. Yep. Us, we don't really know what is about to happen to yeah. us, but yep. we never position ourselves like I don't need uh, I love singing, but it's not my first uh, response. When I know I'm about to face trouble, mm. so that to me was like, okay, this yeah. is a deal, deal breaker for me. I need to put that into practice. So. Yep, that's good. Yep, yeah. And the Lord has given us a psalm book for the range of human emotion: sorrows, joys, depressions, highs, lows, praise, thanksgiving. In the Book of Psalms, um, we have hymns, we have spiritual songs. We have the Psalms, so yeah, that's good. How can we sing? How can we sing on the verge of suffering or in suffering? Can we sing? Do we have a songbook for that? Yes. yes. And also to deal with uh, bitterness and perplexity. Yes. Yep. 
even you see psalms that deal with <laughs> bitterness and perplexing circumstances. Yep, yep, amen. Brett? Uh, sorry, one more comment uh, on the songs. Um, the uh, singing is, is, is a parent's greatest tool uh, for getting the truth into your children's mind. So, um, so I would encourage you know, parents, I would hmm. echo your, your encouragement earlier. Um, if you're not seeing with your children, you, you you can you can still instill the truth into them by teaching, but you're making it harder if you're not also employing song as yeah. well. So. Yeah, that's good. Yep, songs tend to stick in the mind. That's I mean we all know this. You can all probably think of a <laughs> song right now, Christian or not. That's in your mind. You can just recall the lyrics. <laughs> the Lord has given yeah this unique gift of song, so we we should use it for good purposes. Okay, well, oh, go ahead. end on that encouraging note God we are grateful and thankful recipients of mercy Um, we don't deserve anything good that we have Um, we can't earn your favor we can't earn blessing we can't earn salvation yet you have been kind to us and merciful and you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ as our atonement, the Lamb of God, uh, to free us from our enslavement to sin by his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand. And so as he was raised and lifted up, may our chins be lifted up to the heavens to reflect, meditate on, consider, and sing. Lord, I stir our hearts um, and worship Keep us, even this morning, as we come into the Lord's Day with the week behind us, uh, but bearing on us, the week ahead, uh, the future uh, bearing on us as we imagine what would be. Lord, help us to be here, to be present um, under the preached word this morning as we sing and pray together and encourage, Lord, encourage us again. Um, strengthen us by your divine Holy Spirit to remember your great and precious promises that um, you work all things together for our good and um, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that although we are sinners, you will bring us to the end. All these things, Lord, remind us of these precious truths and great promises as we read, sing, and pray together. We give you thanks for this. In Christ's name, amen.